Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, Ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now... Taz and Paula. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to the Taz and Paula show. And um, I have to see if Taz is on the line with us. We've been having telephone problems here. I'm here. Oh, great. I'm here. I'm here. Great, great, great. Well, uh, Peter, are you with us? I'm here. Oh, great. Thanks. Everything's going smoothly. Well, to our listeners out there, good afternoon, and we have today we have a great guest. His name is Peter Canova, an author. Uh, we had him back in January and just loved interviewing him and, and invited him back with us. And we wanted to actually learn a little bit more about his newest book, Pope Annalisa, which is the first book of the trilogy series entitled The, the First Souls. It concerns the first awakening of spirit into materiality and the form of human consciousness. You are now listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Well, now for finite details that are important to know about Peter Canova before we begin. At the age of 23, Peter first realized he had abilities concerning intuitive medical readings, remote viewing, psychokinesis, um, and other psychic phenomena. These abilities combined with several other talents qualified Peter to handle this project. Looks like this book might be going hand-in-hand uh, hand with our present circumstances with our new Pope. Um, Peter also has had 25 years of voluminous research behind him uh, in both mainstream and alternative religious studies spiritual history, psychology, and quantum physics, spending several years in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, a background that greatly contributed to the vivid details of peoples and cultures portrayed in his book, Pope Annalisa. Well, Peter is an author and a prominent national speaker and a leading authority on the secret teachings of the Gnostic Gospels, quantum physics, the sacred feminine, and ancient spiritual traditions. He's an acclaimed spiritual teacher, and he has now written a spiritual thriller, Pope Annalisa, which has won um, many national awards in less than a year since its publication, including the Nautilus Gold Award for Visionary Fiction, formerly bestowed to such authors as Edgar Tolle, Deepak Chopra, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. 
Peter also recently signed an agreement with the production executives of Oscar-winning film Black Swan to adapt his book, Pope Annalisa, to a major motion picture. And I just got through reading the book, and I can see that happening. Peter, welcome. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. I hope you can hear me clearly. I am calling you from a truck stop just south of Phoenix, Arizona, <laughs> on route back from Mexico to California. Oh, I hope it was a, a trip for pleasure. Um, it, it was. It was seeing some very old friends we hadn't seen in uh, many, many years, so it was, a, it was a good trip. Well, I, I want to say that your book is a, a, a page-turner, and it's uh, really provoked a lot of um, thoughts on my part uh, about spiritual studies. And uh, there's like little, I mean, not only is it a thriller, but it is giving so many messages to people to contemplate. So I I know it took, when I, when I was reading it, I thought that was during the time that the Pope was being um, elected. And everything was coming through with you put in the book, and when they were going to have a maybe a possibility of a black pope, I thought, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it was kind of inter- it was kind of interesting uh, relative to that um, point, Paula, because the Ohm Times just uh, did an article on the book, and uh, there's a couple of other interesting things there. The original draft of the book that's on file with the Writers Guild in Los Angeles actually had a second Iraq War uh, against Saddam Hussein and his sons. And this was three years before the second Gulf War happened. So when that came about, I decided to change the plot line to Iran going nuclear and destabilizing the Middle East. And we subsequently learned what happened about six years later. (laughs) We learned about Iran. And I decided, nope, I'm not going to change this again. But um, quite a few things have happened surrounding the Pope that were in the book about the first Pope to abdicate in 600 years with uh, strokes and heart condition. Uh, and the prophecies of St. Malachi, uh, having a a new pope with a brand-new name for the first time, just like Annalisa, and the Jesuit, which is the first time they have ever elected anybody from probably the most liberal theological point of view in the church. So what I was saying on Facebook a couple weeks before the election of the new pope was that clearly we're not going to see a female pope at this juncture in history because there's no female cardinals to, uh, to choose from. But um, I did say that there would be a pope probably from the third world, most likely from Latin America, and that there would be some very unique faculties about this pope that would represent an ending of the line of European popes that had been almost continuous now for 2,000 years. And that's pretty much what came about. And it's interesting he, because I'm, I'm wait, but I, you know what, when I, when I hear you say this, <clears throat> there, it wasn't a female, however... The new pope does have energies of a matriarchal format, you know, being with the poor, really caring in a way that a mother would. And so that motherly energy is really there. He does seem, now, I, you know, obviously since his election, a whole bunch of things are coming out, allegations and things like that about his involvement as, as an archbishop and Latin America during a time of upheaval in this country, and whether these things are true or false, we really don't know. We may never know the complete truth. But in terms of what we do know, you're absolutely correct. He he has a different orientation 
than most of the European popes do. He's closer to the people uh, of of his um, of his faith, I think, than the other popes have been who have been more cloistered in the Vatican for many years. And he does have an orientation towards the the poor. And of course, as a Jesuit, Jesuits were the ones who led liberation theology in Latin America. And it's quite unusual that they would elect somebody uh, out of the Jesuits, because traditionally the Jesuits in the Vatican have not been on the greatest terms. So again, this sort of represents what we call in the book the ending of the line, the the last pope, the ending of the line of the old popes. And I, I think when you look at prophecy, prophecy does not always come in exact literal terms. That's not how prophecy works. Prophecy is symbolic, and it's symbolic of larger circumstances, larger trends. And I do think you can clearly interpret the election of this new Pope Francis as an ending of the as an ending of the way as, as an ending of the way things have been uh, with the popes now for for so many thousands of years. So it, it's really quite interesting. Yes, and and the name he chose really has a significance. Yes. So. Absolutely, yeah, Francis of Assisi, and again, uh, as Annalisa was the first pope in the book to have a different name that no other pope had. Uh, Francis is also a pope who, for the first time in history, has selected a name that no other pope has had before. Well, in the book, um, Annalisa is a nun who became appointed a cardinal and then a pope. And she broke all lines, I mean, of racial, because she's black, uh, she's a female, um, does this go along with the studies of um, the divine feminine and the lost goddess? I mean, did you use this, the background of this for your book? Well, you know, that's a very interesting story, Paula. It, it, there, yes, I mean, obviously I did study the sacred feminine and the manifestations of goddess worship over the years, but that was sort of subsequent to the idea of having a female figure become the Pope in the book. And the funny thing about it was that when I first decided to write this book, I remember I was an international businessman, and this came really out of left field, this idea to write a book about a female Pope, because I wasn't a particularly religious person. I'm not a good Catholic. I mean, I haven't been a church in ages. And, uh, you know, there was really probably no reason for me to write this. And Mary Magdalene plays a very prominent role in the book, as I won't tip off some spoiler points here for the plot, but Mary Magdalene plays a very prominent role in the book and the trilogy. And again, that was kind of out of left field because when I started this whole process of writing the book uh, over a decade ago, there was no information about Mary Magdalene anywhere to be found. Maybe about halfway through that decade, all of a sudden there was an explosion of material on her. But anyway, to make a long story short, what I really came to realize was that I've been given kind of a cosmic homework assignment to chronicle the resurgence of an energy coming back into our lives. And that's a a feminine energy that talks about intuition, imagination, and creativity in contrast to the sort of analytical, logical, patriarchal society that we've been ruled under by, you know, for so uh, so many years now. And I think it's part of a spiritual evolution because I think in our earliest incarnations, when we first came into human form from the spiritual world, we were probably much more intuitive and imaginative and closer to our source. We lived in, our ancestors would have lived in, oh, you know, 
tune with the rhythms of the of Mother Earth and so forth. But then, as spirit found itself in material form and subject to all the dangers of material form, we had to gather food. We had to protect ourselves from predators and wild animals. Uh, we had to start to master our environment. And that whole um, movement of dominating the environment is a very logical, analytical process, which was a sort of a male orientation. And I think that's how we evolved into more or less a patriarchal society by using those faculties. But we are beyond that now. We've progressed quite a bit. And I think we're seeing this feminine energy coming back to make us more kind of heartfelt, intuitive beings to balance that out. And I think the next phase of human evolution is when the two of these faculties really merge within us and we become really superior human beings using everything that God has really given us, not just one side or the other. I know you, you talk about uh, hologram, and what I see happening is eventually we will be able to overcome all that we've, all the uh, things that we've created that are not good for Mother Earth. That we can use the hologram for imagination and, and bring in um, new things to help cleanse the Earth and. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities. Well, we are holograms in a way. We're 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 really like sort of like the super hologram. Uh, if you understand what the ancient texts were saying, we are all projections of the divine essence, and that spirit has really projected itself into material form in a three-dimensional world. But it's still our cores still reside in the spiritual dimension. Our problem is that we've forgotten that we've become so focused on the program that we've forgotten that we are the programmers. And because our focus has been on the material world, it seems as if the material world rules us rather than the other way around. But part of this new consciousness is going to be the ability at will to get back in touch with that spiritual anchor we have in that other dimension where the higher information and the higher power resides. And we begin to realize that we can truly shape the the function and, and the, even the form of what we experience in the material world. And as we do that, everything is going to change. The whole paradigm of what it means to be a human being, the whole ball game is going to change. And I suspect that if you look at us, oh, thousands of years down the road, we may revert back to what we once were, which is spirits with the ability to project in and out of physical forms at will. Paula and I were talking last night, and, you know, this world seems to be going in the direction where there is a heartfelt energy. And in your in your book, obviously, um, I hear this uh, this whistle, Paula. Is that something that's from our from our side, or? No, I don't think so, Paula. Okay. No, I don't think right. so. Okay, um, and I was. So this heartfelt energy, and I'm wondering, you know, like Pope Annalisa, she had this this loving energy that everybody could feel, and that we're also feeling that with Pope um, Francis. And I wonder if this is it's an energy of truth that people can really feel, and that, you know, and this is, what will change the world where people will really understand where we have to go and it's to be an automatic thing. It's like, you know, the energy that Jesus had, you know, it's it's an energy where it can be felt. 
and uh, and when you feel the truth, you realize your whole body just says yes. Um, there's mm-hmm. a there's a real understanding among people. And I, you know, after Paula was telling me about the book, because she had read it, it, your book felt as though that it had that kind of energy. Would you describe more of it, please? Yeah, uh, I think what you stated is correct, which is that these things of change, these radical changes, yes, sometimes they happen overnight in a quantum leap, but more often they're incremental. So, for instance, the election of Pope Francis, we'll have to see what he does as a pope, but I view the election of Pope Francis as more like a stepping stone to Pope Annalisa rather than being a Pope Annalisa because he's still conservative, uh, as many as almost all the cardinals are. There are things that he's not going to touch in the Catholic Church, which many people would like to see change. And yet there's other things that, that he represents a genuine change from. I mean, just the fact that they broke the tradition and elected a non-European cardinal from a relatively poor country is something in and of itself. And I think it's an indication of the way that the church is going to go, because if you look at the average Catholic or even the average Christian, average person in the Western world, I think there's certainly a a yearning to see something different, a a different paradigm, uh, something that leads us away from war and uh, a lot of the misery that we've been in and the fact that we seem to be so spiritually disconnected and to bring us back into more of a feeling of unity and more of a feeling of wholeness and just uh, an encouragement that the world is going to change and change for the better. And even though uh, you can't really say that the election of the new pope is doing that with bells and whistles, it's a small step. Uh, hello, are you there? Yes, we're here. Oh, okay, I just got a couple static bursts here on my end. Maybe there's a comet passing overhead. Um, but uh, these things happen incrementally, and uh, I think that his election and the fact that there's so many firsts involved in his election is an indication of things to come so that the idea uh, a century from now, 50 years from now, whatever, of bringing women into the church will not seem so remote. Because remember, at the end of the day, as authoritarian and as autocratic as the Catholic Church is, the church is supposed to be the body of Christ, and the body of Christ are the people. And the people want these changes. The people would love to see a female clergy. The people the people would love to see, uh, you know, some radical changes in the church. And as the body changes, the head has to change with it or die. So what I'm saying is that I think it's it's going to be the change of consciousness in people around the world that's going to force institutions like the church to change, maybe kicking and screaming at some time, but it's going to force them to change or they won't exist at some point down the road. Now, you might even become an Annalisa yourself when your your uh, book becomes a movie because I'm sure there's going to be some strong opposition to the what the movie represents from the you know people that are conventional Catholics or conventional Christians. Do you feel that there might be a problem when your movie comes out? No, actually, I, I really don't, uh, Paul. Based on based on the feedback that I've gotten, not not just from uh, Catholics, but from 
uh, fundamentalist Christians, from evangelicals. They they love the book because I oh, think great. the book talks uh, talks about aspirations that they have uh, buried in their hearts. And I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was researching the book, I had to call the Catholic Archdiocese in Boston. And I got to talking to the ladies on the phone. Uh, some of them were lay people. Some of them were nuns. I guess it was mostly women who sort of were running the office there. And uh, while I was sort of waiting to hear the bishop, uh, waiting to talk with the bishop, I started talking with them, and they started asking me about the book. And they all, I guess, were gathering around the phone, listening, and they were all saying, oh, do you think we'll really ever see a woman pope? Do you think we'll ever see a woman priest? They were so excited about it, uh, about the whole concept of it. And you see, that's what that's what I'm saying. This is, these are women who work right in the archdiocese. Um, it's the it's the official line from Rome that prevents these things from happening. But when they realize that the consciousness of the people uh, is in a is in a different place, they're they're going to have to change uh, eventually. So I really believe that yes, there may be some resistance when the book uh, comes out as a movie, uh, certainly among amongst the Catholic hierarchy and maybe from the Vatican itself, but from the Christians, uh, Catholics, Christians, uh, evangelicals. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of support for the book and for the movie because I think it's really saying something that is in people's hearts and minds and they maybe haven't articulated it. So maybe the movie might be another mild stepping stone. I think the movie could be a major stepping stone if it's handled correctly. If we can get this movie, if Hollywood doesn't mess with it too much, and we can get it to the point where the spiritual message stays intact, uh, I think it could be more than a mild stepping stone. I think it could be a, a game changer. I think the book itself, once it gets in wider distribution, will be a real game changer. Well, everybody that I've told to read the book, they come back and say, wow, that's the best book I've read in and they go on and on. So I'm sure it's going to take off big time. So it's it's going to become a classic. I mean, that's my belief. Well, that would be great because, I mean, my my goal really is to have people of all different persuasions, and I don't just mean religious persuasions, but I mean all levels of consciousness read this book. And, in fact, if you look at the reviews on Amazon for Pope Annalisa, Oh, about half of them are people who aren't particularly spiritual, but they just love the book and they're they're sensing something in there. The other half are people who just you know the spiritual wisdom in the book just really jumps right out of them and they they really relate to that. And that's how the book was written. The book was written to be felt or absorbed by people at many different levels of consciousness. I just didn't want to address a book to you know a few uh, what 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 I call them spiritual elites, let's say. <laughs> But they like that, too. So, you know, I, I, it's very gratifying to see the wide-based acceptance that the book has been receiving. Well, I used a highlighter, and I highlighted things that I want to go back and read again. I mean, it's all through the book. Different yeah, that book, is, that book is one that really lends itself to being read several times because there's so many different layers that you uncover with each reading. So it's a trilogy of the first souls. Could you say a little bit about first souls? Sure. The first souls trilogy is about the first spirit to fall into the consciousness of materiality. It's about the first fall of spirit into the material dimension, into this world we know as, as Earth and three-dimensional world. And it's really the story 
of all of us. It's, it's about the origin, destiny, and purpose of humanity as it's traced through the lives of these um, cardinal or seminal souls through different lifetimes and, and in the arc of their growth uh, and in terms of, you know, coming all the way down from spirits to the lowest point and then starting back up again to go back to our spiritual home to regain our consciousness. That, uh, that story is really our story. It's analogous to what all of us go through on our own spiritual journey. The second book, which I'm working on right now, is called The Thirteenth Disciple. Uh, it, uh, it takes place primarily around the, the time of uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and it has, a, it has, of course, the thirteenth disciple is Mary Magdalene, uh, but it does cut back uh, to the present, uh, of the characters of the first book and the present, but they're actually all the same characters. Um, the, the characters of the present book are actually the characters in the, in, in the biblical times in, you know, in earlier incarnations. So we kind of get an interesting look to see the, the, the arc of their own spiritual growth, which is really our spiritual growth. And the final book is called The Light of Distant Suns, and that takes place in, in a, at a little bit of a future date, and it shows, uh, it gives a picture of a more evolved humanity after all these changes have been wrought by, uh, by Annalisa and by the activities of the first souls. So do you see uh, three movies being made from your three books? <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, I guess a lot of it probably depends on how the first movie does, and that's a tricky proposition because, you know, what happens with movies is that, you know, Pope Annalise is an epic, so it's not an inexpensive movie to make. And when you're talking, you know, $40, $50, million, financing becomes pretty tricky. You may have to involve a studio, and studios can get a little tricky in terms of how they mess with material. We're looking at all different ways to finance this. Uh, we're a little... We're actually a couple steps away from that because we're still working on polishing the script. But once the script is done, we, we hopefully will get some big-name director and some really A-list actors uh, attached to the project as it is who will work with us to sort of you know fight to keep the integrity of the thing. So uh, a movie isn't just a simple translation from a book into a movie, you know, like one-to-one one, one one translation. You've got to go through a lot of filters of people who sometimes don't quite get what made the book what it was because they're looking at it in, in a different way. So if the first uh, movie succeeds, uh, like I hope it will, I'm sure that there will be other movies from the subsequent books. Peter, when you wrote the book, is there um, an area in the book that came to you, you know, to develop that you were very surprised about, that you didn't anticipate that originally in the script when you were writing it? You know, I, I'll tell you honestly, the whole book was like that. I mean, the whole book was like a revelation wow. to me, really, because as I said, I was an international businessman at the time and not a particularly religious person. I, I was spiritual. I was very, most definitely a spiritual person, but I was not a religious person. So uh, if I had someone had told me, well, you're going to write a book, a novel, I wouldn't have thought it would have involved the Catholic Church or a Pope or whatever. But that's the way that this whole thing came to me. And and I think what it, it still is kind of a revelation to me, even writing the second book. This project is going somewhere. And I'm only made privy to it at certain points in time. And I look back and I realize that, it, yes, it was about chronicling the rise of this feminine energy in terms of our spiritual evolution, I probably realized that oh, about, about a year ago, or a year and a half ago, and that's after a decade of working at this. And I, I and I, I think that 
uh, a lot of what the remainder is is kind of recovering our lost Western spiritual history, talking about what the original Christianity was like and what what the mystical message was that Jesus was teaching that got so bastardized with the advent of Christianity marrying the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had a tremendous warping effect on early Christianity and changed the entire character of it. And we lost the mysticism, we lost the understanding of reincarnation, we lost the feminine uh, intuitive energy and prophecy that was so evident in the early church. And I think a lot of what I'm, the book is speaking to is restoring this spirituality to the Western world that is still evident in the East, in Hinduism and Buddhism, but has become so materialized and literalized and, and, and suppressed in the Western world, is, is to have us rejoin the ranks of those people who tend to look at the world in primarily spiritual terms first and material terms secondarily, whereas we have it flipped in the Western world. We look at all, everything, really, in terms of materiality first and spirituality and spiritual understandings take a distant second or third. And I think that the trilogy itself, one of the things I'm starting to sense that's being revealed in the trilogy itself is the restoration of that knowledge uh, that, that will hopefully lead us back to a more spiritual perspective of life. Now, in your bio, it says something about uh, you doing remote viewing. Did remote viewing play any part of how you received the book? Uh, you know, it, it's hard to distinguish when you talk about these phenomena uh, like re- remote viewing or, you know, channeled information. It, at some point, it's a little, the lines are a little blurred in terms of, well, how do I label this information I just got? Um, the remote viewing, if you want to just take remote viewing literally, I, I mean, one example of remote viewing I did was I was at, oh, I think I was one of these whole life expos, and the the guy, we had a room full of about 100 people, and the guy said, well, you know, we have a picture here, we're not going to show it to you, but we just want you to sort of draw what you think is in this picture, and then we're we're going to we're going to show it to you. So I, I saw kind of an unusual scene. It was clearly a desert, very arid desert, but it had a body of water in in the middle of it, like some kind of a lake or something. And there was a motorboat going along it, and there was a cactus in the background, the motorboat in the foreground of the lake, and there was a cactus in the background, and then there were mountains and desert in the back. And I drew that exact scene. Uh, and as it turned out, when they... Um, when they revealed the picture, it was almost a duplicate. In fact, he took my drawing and held it up to show people. It was almost a complete duplicate of what was what was in there. So um, that's a literal example of remote viewing. The, the the channeled information that I got, for instance, the prophecies and the predictions in the book, they would start to just come to me during the, the course of my everyday consciousness. I would just write and this idea would come to me, a scene would come in my head, and I would just I would just write it out. Now, whether you want to call that remote viewing or clairvoyance, I, I don't really know at that juncture, and I don't really think it's important how you actually label it, but it was clearly information coming from some other dimension because, as it proved out years later, uh, it had a great deal of accuracy in terms of actual geopolitical events that were uh, happening in the world. Well, if you if you look at time, quantum time, 
I mean, things are happening, you know, all at the same time. So maybe you, you jumped into the that time. There is definitely a dimension where things are static. In fact, probably the basic character of creation is is, is actually static. And it, it, I talk about this in some of my lectures. That, that static, unchanging oneness, and you can call it any name you want. You can call it God, Supreme Consciousness, uh, the Source, whatever you want to call it. it. It's one, and everything, there is no time, there is no space. It just It's just everything at once. And in order to create the illusion of time and sequences and motion and everything else, it kind of breaks itself up uh, into different dimensions, almost like, um, think of a roll of film. You have one roll of film, but within that one roll of film, you have a bunch of different frames. And when the frames are run by the lamp of the projector, it gives the illusion of motion. And that's really the same way that creation works. There's there's only really one roll of film in effect there, but it breaks itself up into frames so that it runs in a sequence that gives the appearance of time that we experience in this dimension, but at the higher dimensions of the source, there, that that doesn't really that doesn't really exist. So yeah, maybe maybe when you tap into this stuff, you know, you're reaching up into those other dimensions where time doesn't really play the or have the same appearance or function that it has down here. Not only that, but I I also feel that maybe something might be. Um, in solidity at this point in a in a thought time frame, but as humanity progresses, that it's almost like um, one frame after another kind of merges in it, and it's able to um, uh, create a better scenario than what we would have thought in the past, and. Um, so you know, I I can see where you're writing. You, I mean, it's, it looks like you're able to jump ahead and look at aspects, maybe bringing back scenarios and information that people can can um, it, it brings it to their consciousness. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think what the book does, and, and incidentally for the listeners, I should probably say that if while you're listening to this, you might want to go to my website, popeanalisa.com, P-O-P-E-A-N-A-L-I-S-A.com. It has a lot of information, some of what oh. we're talking about here now in articles. But uh, I think you're absolutely correct in that statement because what I think is happening with this book and with this trilogy is it, it, it's, it's articulating something that is just below the level of consciousness for a huge mass of people in the world today. And it's bringing that thought form. It's crystallizing that thought form. It's giving it shape and giving it form and giving it a concept that people can identify with their conscious minds. And when that happens, when you bring that energy out of the collective unconscious and you bring it into the light of conscious awareness as a crystallized thought form, that's when things really start to change. That's when the world around us and our circumstances really begin to to, to change. And I do believe that what this book is doing is it's articulating this whole feminine energy, this whole intuitive, uh, this whole movement of our being 
back to a more intuitive understanding of things that is that the book is really performing that role and in doing so it's just sort of galvanizing you know the the, the thought forms of, of millions of people in effect uh on in, into something they already really know but they're just not aware of because there's so much inside of us that all of us know in fact i believe that each and every one of us contains probably all the knowledge and information of the universe within us. It's just locked in there and it's dormant because we don't realize what we are and we're so focused on one aspect of existence, which is materiality, that we've forgotten the tremendous energy like a like an atom bomb, in effect, that's locked in all of our cells there. And if we get in touch with that energy, there's all the knowledge of the universe lies therein. And so, you know, I think that this book is just one little key that is help, helping to unlock that treasure vault within us. And looking at the religious aspect and the spirituality aspect and watching, I, you know, um, and seeing them merge between each other, you know, kind of going back and forth. And um, so I, in your book, I haven't read your book, but I wonder if there's a transition allowing us to see that merging where we can understand better both aspects of what's really going on, even in today's world. You mean in terms of religion and spirituality? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, that, well, there's definitely a relationship between the two, but they're not exactly the same. And the best way that I can describe it and what is being described in the book is this. Each of us is on a spiritual journey, whether we know it or not. And if you look at that journey as a highway that we travel along, and like any other highway in America, along the way there's way stations, there's, there's bus stops, truck stops, way stations. And we stop in there, and religion will tell you, we've got all the answers in these four walls, so punch your ticket and stay here. There's no need to move on anywhere else. Just you know, kind of join our membership here. And the spiritual person will say, yeah, well, thanks, and I have learned something here, but I'm going to take that and I'm going to move on up the road to the next way station. So the spiritual person will will be open-ended about things. They'll, they'll keep an open mind and they'll be open-ended that it is a journey and it is a process, and at each stage you're gaining a higher awareness, whereas religion encourages you to sort of stay in that one box in one place, and it's kind of closed-ended, and, you know, it it tends to be a little bit more uh, constrictive of your growth. Now, that's not to say that within religion or within one of those boxes or another, uh, it doesn't contain truth. It, there certainly is truth in all religions, but it, it's not it's not the final truth. It's not the be-all and end-all of existence or our spiritual journey. So the whole idea of spiritual versus religious growth is to one is open-ended, the other tends to be a little bit more closed-ended. So for the spiritual person, you take a look at uh, those stops along the road, and those are just signposts on to your next destination, but never mistake the signposts for the destination. I know there's a lot of signposts in religions and that kind of thing. Um, however, I know that within the uh, Bible, there's like codings, and if people kind of look into those, perhaps they're able, like spirituality, what happens is is that you get this 
um, conscious awareness within yourself that you realize how this can make sense and how it can switch over. And I kind of, you know, for someone to develop the religious aspect, I wonder if that wasn't maybe there was spirituality first and then the religion aspect and then them, of course, wanting control issues. You know, they kind of block certain things. But I kind of wonder if that... um, what am I trying to say here? That the merging of consciousness can also be gotten with a searching religions throughout the world, that kind of thing. Well, you know, it, 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 it can if you understand how to read things. Now, the, the code, a lot of people talk about codes in the Bible, and I, I tend to pay less attention to things like numeric codes and, you know, some of these other exotic codes they come up with, although there may be some truth in that. The, the real code, what I found in Scripture, is the fact that people are reading things that were written thousands of years ago with today's consciousness, today's mentality. So they've lost a lot of the understanding or the context of what was meant back then. And, you know, they tend to take things literally. Now, look, even back in, uh, say, the time of Christ, there was a great Jewish teacher in Alexandria, Philo of Alexandria, and Philo said, listen, the Hebrew Bible is not meant to be read literally. It's meant to be understood allegorically. And in order to understand something allegorically, you have to have context. You have to have a wider knowledge, a wider spiritual knowledge, so that those things that you're looking at don't take on just a purely literal, bold-faced meaning, but you understand the deeper symbology of what they stand for. You can read a code, but if you don't understand the basics of the code or the parameters of the code, you're not really and truly going to understand what it's saying. And so what Philo was saying way back in 70 um, A.D. was that uh, most people, um, the Jews at the time even, had forgotten how to read and understand their own Bible. So they had a literal understanding of of, uh, Yahweh as a, you know, this kind of stern God who would exterminate Israel's enemies and, uh, you know, uh, if you better do good or he's going to send a flood after you and all these other kind of things. Not a, not really the conception of the God of love that Jesus was talking about in the New Testament. Are they really the same God? Well, you know, chances are they are the same God, but, but they were written with different understandings at different periods of time, and they had different symbologies attached to them. So you really have to understand the context of the spiritual scripture, the sacred scripture you're reading, in order to really get the symbology out of it. Because I'll give you an example. If you read the Gnostic text and you just take a literal reading of the Gnostic text, some of them sound like they're written by lunatics. But when you have a book, but a historical context and you have a spiritual context uh, or some scholarship behind it, then it starts to open up a whole new world. You start to understand, wow, these guys are saying things that only quantum physics is restating today, and they were doing this thousands of years ago. So I I think the code part of what you were talking about is less like, you know, numeric codes and those kind of, you know, literal codes than it is really understanding things in context. Yes, yes. That's where I was Well, thank you. I read in your book, uh, one of the cardinals said, Learning how to recognize answers is just as important as knowing how to ask questions. Yeah, so, exactly. And I think that's what you're saying right now. 
means to. I, 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 I am because, you know, God answers our prayers much more often than we think. We just don't know how to recognize them. You know, uh, what was that? Someone, someone was telling me a, a joke recently about um, a guy who was in a shipwreck and his boat was sinking and he was in dire straits. And, you know, he, he, he prayed to he prayed to God that God would rescue him. And he had so much faith in God that he just knew that God was going to uh, rescue him. And, uh, you know, a, a, another boat came along and he said, no, no, you don't have to pick me up. You can go ahead because I know God's going to rescue me. And then a second boat came along and he said to the next boat captain, you know, thank you, thank you, but, you know, God's. God's going to rescue me. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll be out of here soon. And then finally a third boat came along, and he turned that boat away also. And uh, and he drowned. And when he was up in heaven, um, you know, he was before the throne of God, and he said, but God, he said, I, you promised me, and, and I had faith in you that you, you were going to rescue me. And God said, hey, I think it's three boats. <laughs> you see? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is we do get all kinds of answers and signals through dreams, through synchronicities, through uh, other things, but we don't know how to recognize them. We think they have to come in a certain prescribed way that our own mind gives form to. We have to be open to understanding things at different levels. Yeah. And, and speaking of dreams, uh, you even had that in the book where Pope Annalisa was working with dreams. Yes. I mean, you you touch so many different things. Dreams are important. Um, dreams, um, you know, if you if you are awake and attuned, you are being told a story of your life. You're being given a movie of your life that's running right underneath your nose, twenty four seven, and it's apparent. It comes apparent through dreams, through synchronicities. Um, through many other avenues that we just don't recognize and we dismiss. And these opportunities to understand things about ourselves go by the board daily. But most people don't know how to, it's like, you know, most people don't know how to read ancient scripture in context. Most people don't know how to look at their own lives in context. They don't know how to decode their own lives. But I will tell you from my own personal experience that um, they, they, all the answers that you need to guide you in your life are all within you. You don't really need a tarot reader. You don't really need a psychic to to do it. All they're doing is they're bouncing back information that's coming from you. In fact, that's why I stopped doing medical readings. One of the reasons I stopped doing medical readings was I said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of making these people dependent on me when they really should be their own medical intuitive. And so I want, I said, I want to change what I'm doing to write books and write other things that will allow people to help people come in contact with their own higher information. And then I feel like I've helped a lot of people as, a whole, as opposed to just getting one or two individuals, you know, dependent on me and the readings that I'm giving them. Well, if, if you start to look for the signs and start to remember your dreams, then your life becomes magical. It does. It is absolutely. That's, and that's the word that I would use. It really seems magical. A lot of people can't understand that. What we're talking about right now to a lot of people is probably sounding like an intellectual proposition. Oh, you know, yeah, it's one of those things they say at New Age seminars, but it's kind of BS. And I can understand that because that's how I felt a lot. But, you know, it, 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 how can I say it? It's like anything else, folks. You've got to practice at it, you've got to read, you've got to understand, you've got to meditate, you've got to experiment. Uh, I didn't just come to where I am right now by reading books, because reading books is just an intellectual exercise, and that's not 
uh, that's good, but it's not going to get you there. Uh, you have to practice. You have to learn how to develop your intuition, uh, understand a much wider context about your own life, and then the circumstance in your, circumstances in your life start to take on meaning. It starts to make sense, and you start to see patterns forming there. But you've got to do your homework. Yeah, and I know personally, I mean, I'll, I'll do that for a while, and I forget about it, and it kind of goes on the wayside. But when I really concentrate on looking for patterns and looking for things, then my life becomes magical again. Sure. Uh, you're going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area coming up soon. You want to tell our listening audience where you're going to be and what dates? Yeah, on um, on April 7th, Sunday, April 7th, I'm going to be uh Centers for Spiritual Living at Corte Madera, um, giving one of my lectures on quantum spirituality there. And we're going to cover a lot of really neat stuff. Uh, much of what we've talked about here will be dealing with the sacred feminine, the lost women of the church, uh, the secret message of early Christianity that was lost. Uh, we'll be talking about um, quantum physics and ancient spiritual texts and how they're saying the same thing about the deep questions of life, human origin, creation of the universe. And it's really kind of a spiritual tour de force. And at the end of the day, I think what it really does is it gives people both a spiritual and a scientific framework to encourage them in their own practice uh, and let them know that, you know, if you do decide to embark on a spiritual course in life, there's a real payoff at the end of the day. And it's practical and it's concrete. It's not airy-fairy stuff. That's why we go into science and spirituality. And it's really uh, helped a lot of people out there. So if anybody is in the San Francisco area, uh, that's uh, Sunday, April 7th. I believe it's a, I believe it starts at 1 o'clock. Uh, but uh, you can contact the Center for Spiritual Living in Corte Madera and uh, they will let you know, and I hope to see folks there from the Bay Area. Well, it sounds like, I mean, we just barely touched on what you're going to be talking about. That's going to be a very interesting subject. Yeah. Your website is popeanalisa.com, and that's That is right. uh, Pope, and then Annalisa is A-N-N-A-L-I-S-A.com. Yeah. Oh, there's uh, that your web your website has so much information. I mean, you could spend hours in there just reading everything or listening, looking it at the is. videos. It is. It's got some great article. It's got some great articles and uh, videos. And for those of you who are interested in the book in particular, you can go to Amazon and there's oh, there's over 50 Amazon reviews. Most of them are five star reviews. I think almost all of them. Uh, and you can get a good cross section of what people are saying about the book. And the thing I like about those Amazon reviews is. It, it does come from a good cross-section of people. I mean, there's some people in there who are, um, you know, you wouldn't, they're just religious. They might be Catholics, or you wouldn't call them, let's say, spiritual in the metaphysical sense. But there's other people there who are more metaphysical. and You get a really good cross-section of people making comments about the book, and I always think it's a terrific way to go if you're interested in the book itself. You can sort of see what, um, you know, other people have to say about it and get a little flavor uh, of the book. So, Going to my website and checking out Pope Annalisa on Amazon Books, uh, it's, a, it's a good way to get some idea what the whole project is about. Peter, when you were younger, what what was your life like? What kind of child were you when you were younger? Did you did you surmise any of these things that um, that you write about to this day, or what what, what kind of child were you? 
I, I wouldn't say I was any, anything remarkable. Um, I, w- I was I was always like, I think I was always the type of person, I would say almost had like x-ray vision. I never really looked at the apparent things. I was always trying to look deeper. And it probably got me into more trouble than anything else because, you know, like uh, I guess kids that think like that, they have a different thought process. That, you know, I, I'm not, I, you know, when I was taking SATs or standardized scores like that, I was one of those kids that could always see three answers to the same problem, but they only wanted one answer. So I, you know, I, and later on, I just kind of was really interested in the deeper questions of life, and I got I got bored with mundane stuff pretty easily because I was I was always looking on, on the horizon. But if you're asking me, did I have any indication of? Uh, psychic abilities at a young age or anything like that. No, I would just say I had a deep uh, inquisitiveness and desire to kind of understand how this world works. Even at at a young age, I just felt, yeah, there's got to be a lot more to this than what I'm seeing here. There's more going on here behind the scenes. And, of course, I couldn't articulate that or or figure, figure it out and um, I guess uh, I lived a lot in my head as a kid. You know, I I, I probably was, I don't know, what would you call that? I don't know if you call it, intele- not intellectual, but I just I just tended to think a lot. I was I was living in my head a lot, and I used to, you know, daydream, analytical. and I used to vis- visualize things. It was not analytical. It was more like a visualization of things. Um, so I developed visual abilities at a very young age. I was always very good at visualizing. And that probably was the one characteristic I would say. If you ask people who knew me as a young man or knew me, know me now, they would say, you know, visionary, visual, visualization, that, that's really what he's all about, visualization, and, you know, which kind of creativity. Because as a developer, as a, as a hotel developer, uh, we, we used to develop very unusual projects because I kind of get these strange strange ideas in my head that were different from other things that were going on. I'd say, let's try this development. Let's see how this works with the public. And it mostly would work very well. So, uh, But I, I wouldn't call myself anything exceptional. Uh, but that, that's sort of the way I was as a kid, though. Well, when did you first start um, recognizing your intuitive ability? Not really until my early 20s. You know, I, I didn't really have my first. I didn't have my first confirmation of these abilities until my my early twenties, when I found out that I was a medical intuitive. And then after I got over the disbelief of what I was doing as a medical intuitive, the floodgates opened up, and then I started having all these other experiences. You mentioned in my bio the clairvoyance, clairaudience, um, remote viewing, psychokinesis. All these different things sort of started happening like a floodgate. It opened up. So maybe that was part of that deep penetration that you could do even as a young child where you could just sit and you could visualize these aspects and you would go in and see all different scenarios but you know and see how they work together so actually mm-hmm. you're almost like laying that, the that's probably true for like an x-ray you know <laughs> yeah that no that that part of it is probably true that that kind of penetrating these other other realms uh with my mind you know, with the visualization, that that part is probably true. But I, I did not have, for instance, I would not have manifested what you would call classic psychic phenomena when I was a child. Um, you know, um, a few premonitions, but I think all of us have those. But I would not have manifested the, the things that I did at a, at a later stage, or like when I was in my 20s. It, it was nothing that avert when I was a child. It was probably more like what you just described, which is that I was maybe already tapping into certain dimensions, creative dimensions, so that when the time came and I started getting more formal training 
in terms of developing psychic abilities, it came a lot easier to me than it did to most people because maybe I already had the groundwork laid, you know, the substructure that was already there. Yeah, to steal your mind and to, you know, to go into the depths. Um, I, this is so exciting. You know, what you've done with your abilities and bringing it forth, you know, allowing people to see their lives more fully maybe than they had anticipated simply by what you've brought forth on your pages. And uh, it's really a pleasure. Um, I know Paula has enjoyed the book so much. Um, well, that's always the, as an author, that's always the best thing you want to hear is that someone has really enjoyed your work. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when you're talking about intuition, probably the, uh, the Gnostics, at the beginning of time, just thought that was normal. <laughs> I mean, they used their intuition all the time, where we kind of buried it. Well, clearly the Gnostic masters were operating at a very high intuitive level. I mean, the information that they brought back uh, about the deep questions of life were just astounding, and they weren't the only ones, of course. I mean, their information correlated with that of other spiritual wisdom traditions all over the world. And I think that at one time there was one body of spiritual knowledge that we forgot over thousands and thousands of years, but the remnants of that, uh, you know, exist in all these different cultures. So there is a commonality of a spiritual tradition, what I call a universal spiritual tradition, that you can find these threads that run through almost every major religion. Now, they've been changed, they've been obscured, they've been altered, but you can still see the threads of this common tradition there, and it, it, it stems from way back and oh, probably before the dawn of history when we, we really had this information uh, available to us at a, at a much more uh, day-to-day intuitive level. Well, we've certainly enjoyed talking to you today, and uh, it's wonderful having you come back and uh, go a little bit deeper into your book and let everybody know that they can go on to your uh, your website, popeanalisa.com, and uh, join you in Corte Madera April 7th. Yeah, Sunday, April 7th. Center for Spiritual Living. So if... if you think it's one o'clock, but we can always like call there and, and confirm the time. So yeah, I've been on. You're gonna have to excuse me. I've been on vacation here, so, so I, <laughs> well, I forgot some things. But uh, anyway, well, uh, well, yeah, well you should be able to contact them. Okay. Yeah, well. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us, and have a great day. Well, it was great being with you. I'm going to sign off for my little truck stop here in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, wish you a good day. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time at the truck stop for us. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
couldn't find one for pizza. Little girl from down the street, I think she walks the dogs. 